From First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, you're listening to a message from the series Traction, Getting Past Your Past. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Let's, let's ask ourselves, how can we keep moving forward in understanding more about forgiveness? And this morning, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that will answer most specifically the why question. Why forgive? I tend to think that if you understand the why of anything, you're more likely to take steps in the what of it. Does that make sense? And often we don't make steps in the what of an area because we often don't really understand why. Like, so, so what's the point of this? Or why am I doing this? But if we really grasp the why, we're more likely to engage the what. So this morning, I, I mainly just want to kind of address the why of forgiveness. Maybe you're wondering, well... Why don't people forgive? Before you tell me why we should, are there reasons people don't forgive? James McDonald, he lists five, and I think these are pretty insightful. I'll just itemize them for you. He says, I can't forgive because it's too big of a situation. He says, some folks don't forgive because they think time will heal it, when really that's just avoiding it. Some folks won't forgive because they feel like the other person has never said they were sorry. Fourthly, he says, some folks don't forgive because they say, I can't forget what happened. And lastly, he says, some folks don't forgive because they'll say, well, they'll just do it again to me. If you've recognized yourself in any of those reasons you haven't forgiven, or perhaps this topic has brought up already some emotion, like, man, I'm dreading the next 30 minutes. (laughs) If you find yourself unwilling to forgive, listen very carefully, Satan will always be just one step ahead of you. Let me say that again to you. If you find yourself unwilling to forgive, Satan will always be just one step ahead of you. Now I trust you're asking right now, is that really true? Can you prove that? I'm really glad you're thinking that way. I can. From seven verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Will you take your Bibles and turn there? And let's understand from Paul's letter to this church three reasons that we must forgive. The, the, the why behind the what. They're listed here in these seven verses, verses 5 to 11. Let me read the text for you and then we'll just briefly kind of unpack the three reasons. Before we read, let me just warn you, you're not going to probably hear anything groundbreaking this morning. You'll probably say, I knew all three of those. So our goal this morning isn't to necessarily give you new knowledge. It's to probably, by God's grace, increase your courage to address something you've known for too long has been settling inside. Okay? Let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 is where we'll begin. Paul here is commenting on a situation that the church had to deal with in regards to a sinning brother that they disciplined, and he repented and came back. So with that as our context, look what he says. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So there's a There's a corporate context going on here. He continues in verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority, and I think that's another way to, to express church discipline, 
this church discipline, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should now rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Here's the word of God for us this morning, and it lists for us three reasons we should forgive. First of all, notice in verse 8, we should forgive the why behind the what, because it reaffirms our love for a brother or sister. Do you notice the word there in verse 8? Paul says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The word there is a judicial word. It's kind of a concrete word. In fact, there's not really a lot of emotion to this word. Did you know that? In a, in a passage that's very emotional, this word is actually quite judicial. It just means to reestablish, set in place what actually already exists. And what already exists for this brother who sinned, it's their love for him. So that never went away. And he's saying that when they would, come across, when they would forgive him corporately, when individuals together collectively forgive this brother since his repentance, it would, it would reestablish, reaffirm, it would set in, in place again what already has been existing, that we love you. So it's not hard to see this, kind of plain and simple right in front of our face. I think any parent here can get this. In moments when you've had to discipline your child. And the after effect is often a little tense. What is it that a wise, stewarding parent knows? What does the graceful parent do? They take a few minutes to reaffirm their love for their child. As they're younger, perhaps you bring them close and there's physical touch and you hug them. You say, I know that was a difficult punishment. But your, your dad and I, or your mother and I, or I love you. And in fact, it's our love for you that compels us to train you well and to discipline you. We don't not love you. We actually love you more than you know. And so this is why we do what we do. And so, just like in physical discipline, when that's finished and over and you reaffirm love, Paul here is saying, forgiveness does that. It reaffirms our love for a brother or sister. Notice the second thing that Paul says forgiveness, uh, why it matters. Here's another why behind the what. Verse 9. He says here that it tests our obedience. This is quite intriguing to me. Because Paul here really is, is saying that this is like the final exam question in the school of Christ-likeness. The question is this. Are you willing to forgive? Now, notice the verse a little more intensely with me, would you? Your eyes are on verse 9. He says, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient. And then there's two words, say them with me. In everything. Say them again, in. Can, can we just talk honestly that in this text, there seems to be a connection between their obedience in their life generally and their obedience to this specific call to forgive specifically. Do you kind of catch that? Paul's saying, I'm writing to you to see if you'll forgive because I want to test you to see if you're obedient in everything. That's, that's kind of intriguing to me. I'm not sure I get it totally except to say this. 
The question of forgiveness is really the final exam in the school of Christ likeness. It's, it's the one question you don't want to miss and get wrong. <laughs> it's the one that really matters. It must carry more weight, perhaps, than the other questions. Does that make sense? There's a connection here. Paul's saying, I'm testing you. I want to find out if you're legit, authentic in your obedience. And how do I find that out? Are you willing to forgive? In fact, the word test, used twice in this epistle, both times it's used of being approved, of being found out to be authentic. The word's dokimos in Greek. And it was used often to describe a, uh, someone's work to see if a coin or a piece of currency was actually authentic or counterfeit. And Paul here is saying that when you forgive, I'll be able to tell if your obedience is counterfeit or authentic. Now, let's just kind of put some shoe leather on that, can we? Listen very carefully. I think this gives us some insight into why some people though they, on the outside, seem to do a lot of obedient things, still remain stuck and never gain traction in their spiritual life. You know why? Because though they're attending worship with the community, though they're involved in a small group, though they're perhaps reading their Bible and praying, and there seems to be some external obedient points, they're harboring an unforgiving spirit. And so though they continue to appear obedient, they're actually missing the key question on the test. Maybe I just described you. You feel like your life is going through the motions. You're in a rut, you would say. And yet you seem like you're doing all these obedient things. But deep inwardly, you're harboring a lingering bitterness towards someone. Deep inside, you know it's probably doubt towards God about a situation or event that occurred. And you're just still unwilling to let that go. You want that score settled somehow. You want that to be made right so you feel better. And you're just not willing to forgive yet. You see, you've answered a lot of questions, but you've missed the key one on the test. This is intriguing, isn't it? And it's quite convicting. This is why forgiveness matters, because it actually tests our obedience to God in ways that very few other things do. I was reminded of this as I read this article this week about a young mom in Namibia. Don't try to say that three times fast. (laughs) Namibia is a country in Africa. She was a young mom there, lost... They lived in a village, and uh, in this village, many witchcraft, much witchcraft, many pagan practices were taking place. One of them was that if you could sacrifice a very young child um, or a relative of yours, you would gain great wealth. And so this young mom got wind that her mother-in-law was trying to kidnap her young daughter in order to sacrifice her. She appealed to the tribal police. She appealed to um, village uh, council. And they would say, and the article shares this, uh, we can't do anything to override what your family will do. Now, you may not get that, and I don't either, but the article was reporting that this is a very scary situation. So here's this young mom, not a believer, living in this village and scared of her children's lives. And so talking to her husband, um, 
he was up a creek, she was up a creek, and so they decided that she would uh, become a refugee and move from there to Canada. So they decided on a Tuesday, and that Thursday night she was on a plane to Canada to uh, Mississauga. I think that's how you say it. It's just outside of Toronto. She lands there with her young daughter, thinking she's safe. She has a hard time finding housing. Uh, food is scarce. It's a very clean area, and there's a lot of people there, but she's brand new, and so it's just very difficult. In this time of difficulty, she realizes and finds out from her husband that the mother-in-law is now trying to kidnap the son, who is a little older than the daughter. And so in a matter of weeks, they get the son out of there and get him to Canada. So she's now in this uh, territory, doesn't know hardly anyone, with two kids, just a lot of upheaval, and she runs into some folks from Sanctuary Church. In the course of their conversations, um, they help her with housing, they help her with food, they meet a lot of tangible needs. Uh, they're just the, you know, the body of Christ to her, and she's just a stranger. But in the course of that, they continue to have gospel conversations, and she comes to faith in Christ. She's born again. And the first thing she realizes is, I've got some deep issues with my mother-in-law. And she writes this in the article. I came to know Jesus as my Savior through Sanctuary Church, and I made a decision to follow Him and get baptized. And the journey of learning to forgive truly started in that moment. Now, you're talking about understanding something that may be difficult. Like, I don't know what it even means to forgive someone who's trying to kill your two kids. Can we just admit that? That's difficult. Would you be in that boat with me? Like, wow, I'm, I'm not sure I can fathom that. But you see what's happening to her? She's saying that when she came in contact with the gospel, suddenly she realized... I might can do a lot of things. I want to obey, yes, but here's the biggest question of all. Here's the real test. Can I forgive someone? And she wasn't speaking of reconciliation degrees. She wasn't speaking of, of parameters or boundaries. All those are separate issues. She's just saying, am I going to hold and seethe with anger towards her now that God has forgiven me? She writes this. At first, I wanted to condemn my mother-in-law by learning the Bible. Interesting, isn't it? Instead, God has now used the Bible to help me forgive her. And the article is simply about how this point in her life of learning to forgive was actually a key turning point in her obedience. I think it bears out what this, is, this point this is making. That obedience is actually probably, actually probably, can you say that together? <laughs> obedience is this, this pivotal point of obedience for us. And I want to challenge you. You may have a, a list of things you're doing well. I wouldn't speak against that. But if all of that is, is kind of your way to excuse an unforgiving spirit, the balance sheet doesn't work. Because the pivotal issue is will you forgive? It is the test of our obedience to God as to whether or not it's authentic or counterfeit. But there's a final reason mentioned beginning in verse 11, which I think is the overarching reason. These two matter, that it reaffirms our love for a brother or sister. It tests our obedience to God. Those are important. They matter. But I think the one that the, the author, Paul, is getting at mainly is in verse 11, in which he says this. Look with me, would you? Verse 11. So that, that's a phrase of purpose we call it. In other words, here's why he forgave in verse 10. Here's why he's calling on them to forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. 
a real clear, succinct phrase in which Paul says, and I believe primarily and mainly, this is why I'm forgiving and you're forgiving. In fact, notice the weight that Paul puts in this phrase. Look at verse 10. Paul kind of gives a blanket statement. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Wow! Isn't that amazing? Paul doesn't ask for specifics. He's not saying, uh, can you give me the details? He just wants them to know, it's so important that we forgive. If you forgive him, I'm in. And then he says, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, now watch what he connects here. He said, I've done that for your sake. So Paul was forgiving because he knew the church, uh, their, their vitality, their traction, as well as individuals in it, that was at stake. And he says that he does this in the presence of Christ. So Paul is really kind of ramping up here the, the reason he is so adamant that they forgive and that he forgives. You know why? Here it is, verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. The key word in this phrase is the word outwitted. In some of your translations, it will say, so Satan would not get an advantage of us. Uh, the word means to, to rob someone in the moment. It's used other times in Scripture to indicate that someone gets taken advantage of. All right? Here's what's going on. He's not saying that Satan uses unforgiveness to put a final nail in your coffin. In fact, this does not actually say that, that uh, you know, this is what condemns you. There's none of that going on here. He's just simply saying that when you refuse to forgive, when there's an absence of biblical forgiveness, Satan is one step ahead of you. He's got an advantage He's outsmarted you in the moment. That's all he's saying. Now, I'm not saying that's good or that's trivial. I'm just simply making sure we understand what the text says. That in the moment, when you don't forgive, you're a leg down to Satan. Perhaps an illustration would make more sense. Not than the Bible, just in my explanation, okay? Uh, how many of you remember the tennis match about a week and a half ago, not quite that long, six hours, 36 minutes between Isner and Anderson in the Wimbledon semifinals? Man, I didn't get to see a single second of it, but I really enjoyed tennis, and I was uh, intrigued by the, just reading about it. How many of you saw that? Anybody here watch that semifinal? Wow, we've got to work on some tennis around here. Man, I thoroughly enjoyed tennis. I'm playing tomorrow night with Edgar, and I'm looking forward to it. I, I just really like the game. And so the semifinal, third longest match in tennis history, second longest in Wimbledon history, went down to the fifth set, and uh, Anderson won at 26-24. So this week I googled how many advantage points were there in that fifth set. Well, Google couldn't tell me, so I'm done with Google, okay? I mean, they, they, they couldn't come up with an answer, right? Uh, I don't know how many advantage points, but I imagine in that, was that, 50-some-odd games? That's 50 games, 26 and 24, is that right? That's 50, isn't it? Yeah, 25 and 25 would be 50, so that's, that's right. I mean, I've never done math on the spot, and I did okay. That's amazing, Sandy, isn't it? So that many games, you know there's got to be a lot of advantage points. And, a, and, and an advantage point is when, once you hit deuce or later, if you win the next point, then you have the advantage. And you may say, well, what is the advantage? That means you only have to win one more point to win that game. Does that make sense? Well, that's an advantage. If you're not the one with the advantage, you have to win three more, three more points to win the game. So let's say that me and Keith are playing tennis. We're at Wimbledon, and it's a deuce. And he hits a serve, and I smash a winner back, and it stays in, and he can't get it. 
And the announcer in his wonderful Brit accent says, Advantage styles, you know, like that, right? <laughs> so if I win the next point, I win the game. I may not win the match. I may not even win that set. I'm just closer to winning that game than Keith is. In fact, once the British announcer calls my name and says advantage, and Keith knows, wow, I've got to win the next points to get back to Deuce, and I've got to win two more to win the game. He's three points away from winning. How far am I? One. That's why it's my advantage. Some of you are in that same kind of tennis match spiritually. Because you refuse to forgive, you're three points from winning, and Satan's just won. It's not the whole set, the whole match. You're right. It's just one game. But you're always a leg down when you refuse to forgive. You're always three points away, and Satan's just won. And so you remain stuck. You can't get traction. You wonder why you're worn out. That's why. Because Satan has outwitted you. He's taken advantage of you. When we see this final reason, I I think it helps us understand what's going on here. Paul is urging the church, and I think, by implication, the individuals within it, to forgive, watch this church, at all costs. Because the life of the church and the life of those Christians depend on it. Do you always want to be three points behind? Do we always want to be a leg down? Just, do we always want to live as, with, with Satan just one step ahead of us? No, we don't. And so then what is the key to taking back that advantage? Based on what the text tells us today, it is to forgive. Like I said, I don't think this is rocket science. This is not brain surgery. This is not anything really brand new. Some of you would say, I knew that. Then why have you waited so long to take action on what you know? Why do you sit and sour? Why do we linger in unforgiveness, knowing, yeah, that, that puts Satan in, a, in an advantageous place, but I'm okay there. No, no, church, awake out of your sleep. Let us take back ground that Satan is liking to claim right now. Let us take that ground back. How? Not through our own devices or, or power, but by simply doing what Christ has done for us, forgive. In fact, I would say to you, based on this text, forgiveness may very well be one of the top-tiered weapons we have against our adversary. It keeps him at bay from having the advantage. It keeps us closer to winning than losing. This is the, one of the key reasons that People are stuck. They don't forgive. And it's one of the key ways to find traction, learning to forgive. Now, when you hear that, you may think, okay, that's another thing I want to add to my list. Forgive. And so you're going to kind of grab the the handlebars of your life. Man, you're going to 
you know, double down. You're going to pedal faster. You're going to be the best forgiver there ever has been, right? The problem is, forgiveness is not just hard. It's actually impossible apart from the cross of Christ. You, you don't have the fuel to forgive if you don't root yourself at the cross where you have been forgiven. I think this is why Paul here talks about the presence of Christ. It's a small reference, but he's helping us realize who's actually watching the church and its members in this activity of forgiveness. And by then nature, who's empowering this? It's Christ. And what has Christ done for you? What has Christ done for us as the church? Christ has forgiven us. Now, you think about this woman in Namibia. You think about this offense here in 2 Corinthians 2. You may be thinking, wow, uh, those are some horrible things that have happened. But do you realize that all of the sin you've committed against God, all of the ways you've violated His standards, all of the ways I have broken God's laws, every single time in thought or word or action, I have violated God's standards. I have I've sinned against God, a holy, perfect, righteous God. My sin has come up to him. What does he do with that? Does he punish that? Does he let it go? Does it bother him? Here's what God does with that. He punishes that sin in the person of Christ on the cross. And because of that he then forgives me. You see, in forgiveness, no, no, there is no moment of forgiveness in which the pain is not absorbed by someone. Do you know that? There's not this virtual reality where like, two people say, well, we'll just forgive each other and it's done and, and no one suffers. In all forgiveness, someone has to absorb the pain. And when you forgive, you are saying, I'm going to let go of the right for you to absorb it or to make it even and I'll absorb it and you know why I can absorb that pain and can forgive and let you go, so to speak? It's because Christ absorbed mine. And because every violation and offense and wickedness and sin that I did against the holiness of God was absorbed in the body of Christ and paid for by the blood of Christ. And so if God could be merciful and gracious to me, I'll extend forgiveness to you. You see, that's why forgiveness isn't just hard. It's actually impossible apart from the cross. And I, I tend to think there are just many people in church who are trying to forgive out of their own human strength. They're detached from the cross. They don't live a gospel-centered, cross-tethered life. And so they struggle, they struggle to forgive. You know why? Because they're trying to do something with water in the tank. <laughs> and what that tank needs is jet engine fuel. <laughs> because you're looking at a serious task. No one here is saying that forgiveness is easy. No one's here saying that it solves every problem of reconciliation, degrees of it, uh, parameters, boundaries. None of those things we're saying are easy. They're steps, they're conversations. But none of those happen until we find the... the 
the, the fuel to take that first step of saying, it doesn't have to be even. I'll absorb it and forgive it. And why can someone do that? Because Christ has absorbed all of your pain and sin. You see, God didn't just forget about your sin, did he? He, he? he ordained that Christ would absorb it on the cross. And so the answer to, to how we forgive is wrapped up in the, in the gospel. And once we grasp that, and embrace that, then suddenly we realize why forgiveness matters. Because it is the primary, I should say maybe one of the primary ways we battle Satan. We extend forgiveness just like we've received forgiveness. You realize that at the cross, more happened than just you being forgiven. You know that, right? You say, what? You actually were watching warfare modeled. How did Jesus battle Satan? On the cross, he said the words, Father, forgive them. So he modeled this passage. He battled Satan through forgiveness. He extends forgiveness to you. So every bit of your warfare in the war against Satan is really modeled at the cross. Forgiveness matters. So let's just put this in a single sentence, can we? Here's our take-home truth today. Why forgiveness matters. Here's this text kind of in a simple sentence for us. That showing forgiveness matters because it is a primary way that Christians and the church close the door on Satan's evil schemes to destroy it from within. Now as you ponder that and mull that over, as you let that kind of soak within your heart, blanket you, as you ruminate on this sentence, taken right from this text that shows us just why forgiveness matters so much, I need to ask you a simple question. Again, this is more today about courage than knowledge. (laughs) This is more about action than insight. My simple question is this. Is there anybody you haven't forgiven? Is there anybody you haven't forgiven? I'm not asking that lightly. I don't want to presume to be a pretentious pastor. I I don't want to act like I've got all under control. These are questions I wrestle with. Again, this is not to make light of a situation or to minimize some of your pain. This is not to say that every situation after forgiveness is easy or that it's quickly settled. I'm not asking all of those questions. I just want to ask a fundamental question about forgiveness. Is there anybody that you are still trying to hold onto so that they can pay for what they did? The Bible says that as long as you do that, Satan's one step ahead of you every time, and you're stuck. But the minute you let go of the right to get even and simply absorb the pain and forgive in the way that you were forgiven when Christ absorbed your pain, you put Satan uh, behind you. You suddenly gain the advantage. You'll find that your traction will increase. Is there anybody... 
You need to forgive. As I close, and you ponder that, let me just make one last appeal to anyone in the room who is realizing today, I would like to forgive, but I don't think I've ever been forgiven. Maybe you were kind of unaware that a man named Jesus, who was God in the flesh, came to this earth and died for you. And that he absorbed all of the wrath against your sin in his own body. That his actions and his life and his character, his essence, were, were completely satisfactory to satisfy God's wrath against sin on your behalf. And that when Jesus died, forgiveness is available for all who believe. And this morning you're like, well, if forgiveness is available, if everything I've done against God could be forgiven because Jesus paid for it, I would love to be forgiven. And maybe the fact that you've never been forgiven is the root reason you can't forgive. And this morning, I would just urge you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the, that's the phrase in the word that the Bible uses most often to describe someone who wants to turn from sin to God. Throughout the New Testament, we're told to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is we stop believing wrong things, we repent of believing the wrong things, like we're good enough, or that we don't need it. We repent of that, and we believe in the right things, which is that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. And so when someone does that, the Bible talks about that as the moment that they're saved. They come to faith. There's different phrases for that. But that moment of being forgiven through Jesus and his work on the cross for us is the, is the seed element all of us need in order to forgive others. So this morning you're realizing that's why I've never been able to forgive. I don't think I've ever really experienced forgiveness by God for my sins. A simple response to God in this moment would access that forgiveness. Something like this. Heavenly Father, I know my sins have separated me from you. You're holy, I'm not. And there's a bridge, there's a gap there that I can't fix. But Jesus stands in for me. And I believe that Jesus is your son who lived and died and you raised from the dead. And so Lord, I confess Jesus as Lord and ask you to forgive me through Jesus' work for me. The moment that prayer is, that, that response is uttered from faith, God does exactly that. He forgives sinners. And what you find is that those, then, those sinners then turn and act just like God. And when people offend them, guess what they do? They forgive. <laughs> In fact, forgiveness, I believe, is the most God-like thing you can do. So I don't know where you are. I don't know where either one of you is. But is there anyone you need to forgive? Or... Maybe this is why you can forgive, because you've never been forgiven. And this morning, you're just, you're just like, Todd, I want God to forgive me. Praise the Lord. Would you respond to him this morning? Do you notice how both of, those, both of those responses, they'll find their roots in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So can we run there again this morning? And can we realize that any traction we need to make will only start when the cross of Christ intersects every aspect of our life. In this case, 
the need to forgive. And we ask God for the supernatural, Holy Spirit-enabled power to act like Him and forgive. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.